Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. I want to say it's really wonderful to see you in person, and um, I know some of you didn't get here for the Sunday school, but I'm welcome to ask questions afterwards. But uh, right now we want to focus on God's word to us. Um, We've been staying in Black Mountain. Uh, How many of you have been there? Um, The Asheville Black Mountain area has some wonderful people. I have a lot of relatives there, but there are also a lot of people who are kind of post-Christian, secular almost like you could say extremely far left, but there are people who need the Lord, but if you actually went up and talked to them, you would think, oh, if I say the name Jesus, they're going to get mad at me. I don't know. Do you know people like that? Um, Someone you think is never going to become a Christian. Have you given up praying for them, or you think they're never going to change? The passage we're going to look at today is we're going to see someone who, if you ask any Christian at that time, they would say, that guy is never going to change. And we'll see what God did in that person's life. Um, Let's read God's word. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city. You will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, 
who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he returned, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among, among those who call him this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were afraid of him, not believing that he, had really, he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus, he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers living in the fear of the Lord. That's God's word. Whose heart was changed? Saul. This was the guy who hated Christians. He didn't just hate them in the lazy way. A lot of people in America hate Christians in a lazy way. It's too much trouble to do something against, against them, but they kind of look at them sideways like, oh, yuck. This guy hated Christians so much that he made it his mission to persecute them. As we say today, he wanted to cancel them and get them fired from their jobs and silence them and get them arrested. He was someone who was happy if they just disappeared and died. In our day, Christians can Feel pressure. You know, Christians can't even just be silent because in our day, if you don't speak out and agree with the reigning ideas of the day and what society values, if you don't speak up to agree with them, you already have a target on your back, even if you didn't say anything. There's so much pressure to be quiet, but not only to be quiet, to go along with people. Well, let's talk about the Christians, their situation in this passage. Look back at verse 1 and 2 again. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he, if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So take a second, think about what if you lived 
in a time like that? What if you didn't know the rest of the story we just read and you were sitting on verses 1 and 2 in your life? It's in the middle of stress and oppression for Christians. In that type of place, what would you be thinking in your heart? Probably just, where is God? Is this Lord that I have followed, is, is he really active in there? But you keep reading, and then you see... Yes, God is there. He is present with his people, even in those times of oppression. There's the principle, God is involved in your life even when you cannot see what he was doing. During that time of verse 1 and 2, God was very much involved in the Christians' lives. In God's wisdom and timing, God waited until verse 3, and then he began to act. And by verse 31, we saw the result. How had the Christian situation changed? The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. What do you think? Do you like verse 1 and 2 better or verse 31 better? Don't we all wish to live in the times of verse 31 instead of verse 1 and 2? Christians of our day want a comfortable life. That's also why Christians don't share the gospel with others. It's as if they're saying, ah, can, can we have a full-time job that's actually just an endless vacation? <laughs> they, they love themselves. They don't want to love others enough to go make themselves uncomfortable. There's a lesson of wisdom for us to learn. When you are in the situation of verses 1 and 2, remember, as Peter wrote, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that in due time he may lift you up. Verse 1 and 2 led to verse 31. In due time, God lifted the persecution of the church and that started with the stoning of Stephen. So, remember, the church experiencing the persecution of verse 1 and 2 is just as loved by God as the church experiencing the safety of verse 31. God is just as active in that first part even if you can't see what he's doing. Not just the church, you in your life. You are just as loved by God when you are suffering as when you are healthy and wealthy and successful. When you face suffering, don't think, ah, I got to do something because God doesn't love me now. No, you're just as loved at that time because you are in Christ if you have put your faith in him. There's an application also to 
the civil society and the governments. The kings and rulers of the nations need to listen. They might have power now. God might have allowed them to persecute God's people for a limited time period, but Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth. And as Matthew 16, 18 says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church he's building. So I think our lives, our day and age, feels like in this year it's heading towards verse 1 and 2. Well, are you going to lose sleep about that? Are you going to begin to have a lot of fear and worry about our nation? You know, hey, it's going to start persecuting the church now. Oh, no. Think about uh, hurricanes hitting the Carolina coast. Of course, I know you guys up here in Spartanburg, you're just like, ah, that's the low country people. <laughs> but when a hurricane's about to hit, what do they do? They close up their homes, they make a barricade, and they go hide, right? And they're waiting for the storm to pass, and then they go back and pick up the pieces. And people in church can have that kind of idea. Oh, no, the hate of Christians is going up. Oh, no, persecution's just around the corner. Oh, no, the bad people have gotten control of government. We need to shrink in in ourselves and try to avoid notice and hope the storm passes. That's the typical gut reaction. Like a rabbit, you know, who, who goes and hides in the burrow when the foxes come out. Is that the model of the church? Build a hurricane-resistant building and shelter and wait for the storm to pass? Shall the church just stop evangelizing for a while and just, just focus on the members? Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. You get that picture? The church, his people, are on the offense, not defense. The church is laying siege to the gates of hell. In that darkest, most secular, post-Christian, progressive place you can imagine, where the name of Jesus is hated, that's where we invade. In the middle of persecution and pressure from society, God doesn't want us to shrink in and be fearful. We should be like a tiger in the jungle. Because Jesus is our strength, we walk through the woods with roar and stamping of the grass. Every animal in that jungle knows the where the tiger is, unless he's hunting, of course. But we walk without fear because we have a knowledge that anything out there cannot overcome our Lord and his church. Do you live like that in this age? Do you speak up about Jesus? Do you invade Satan's territory and proclaim the truth of the gospel? If you do that, you will set free people filled with hate 
and blinded by Satan's devices and muttering murderous thrusts against the church like Saul did. If you love people who might hate you, if you're motivated by trust in the power of God, you won't be silent. When I was in grad school, I was planning, already planning to be a missionary. One of my college professors I ran into on the street in New York asked me, what are you going to do after college? I was, I was just going into grad school. And I just mentioned that I was getting a PhD in biology. I didn't say I was doing it to become a missionary in China where they don't let PhDs. And as he walked away, he was an applied math professor, I was asking myself, why did I say that? Why didn't I tell him more about what I was really doing? You know, I just said what he wanted, he liked to hear, and that he would approve of me, right? And I, I, I felt convicted. I couldn't change it, but if this kind of thing happened again, I was going to do differently. So when grad school, I run into uh, my, actually, thesis advisor, um, in the elevator, and he's like, what are you going to do afterwards? Because I, I was quitting the PhD pro program and leaving with a master's because I felt called to Taiwan and not China. And that, at that point, I said, well, and I told him what I was going to do. And he said, wow, that's really different. And he said, can I have lunch with you? And I want to discuss this more. That is the, the picture of breaking down the gates of hell instead of being fearful and silent and hiding. You don't know how God's going to work in someone's heart. Now, I can say I don't think he's yet become a Christian, this professor, but maybe because of the conversation he had with me later on, someone, other Christian, will come across his path, and God will use that at that point to turn his heart to the Lord. People tend to expect the pastors and the elders to do this kind of thing. You know, I'm your pastor, and your elders probably have a lot of guts. But the message is not just for pastors and elders. Look back at our text. Who stopped the persecution? Who was the one to start the end of the persecution? Who invaded and took a battering ram against the gates of hell? Look at verse 10 to 14. Well, obviously, Jesus did, but nobody else saw what Jesus did in Saul's heart. Who did it? Ananias. Jesus had already done the work in Saul's heart, and nobody saw that, but God sent Ananias to meet this guy, Saul, and speak to him. God sent an ordinary Christian to give the message to Saul. And that's the point. God uses ordinary Christians like you to break down the gates of hell. Will you trust him and walk in faith and not by sight? And no matter how little you know, speak up to what you know. When I first tried to share the gospel when I was high school, my voice was like <laughs> vibrating and I was really nervous, you know. God can use that. Maybe the person hearing you will say, this person 
really believes this or he wouldn't be doing it because you can tell how nervous he is. You never know. God uses regular Christians to convert and to disciple non-Christians. So, so in verse 15, God tells Ananias, go, you go. Ananias was ordinary, but you see, God's power is not ordinary. You know, in this day and age, people are afraid of CO2, so they're all about putting solar panels everywhere, you know. And you can get some electric power from the sun. You get a tiny little, little part of the sun's energy that the sun puts out every day. God's power is greater than the energy in the heart of the sun. God's power created this universe. And that power is at work in you. Even if you're a little kid, even if you don't know how to talk well, even if you're shy, even if you become a Christian later in life and you don't understand a lot yet, God's power is at work in you. An ordinary Christian. Look at verse 13 and 14. See what Ananias thinks about this task to go talk to this guy. He's like, this guy's a bad dude. He's trouble. You know, if, if you kids, a lot of you maybe are homeschooled, but if you go to a, a school, sometimes there's a big bully, and then there's the biggest bully in the school. You know, they're the little ones and the bigger bullies. This guy's like the worst bully in the entire school, and everybody knows it. That's who he's supposed to go talk to. Um, Saul, later on in Acts 26, Saul described himself this way. He's like, he didn't use the word bully, but he said, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus Christ. And that is what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many times I went from synagogue one to another, to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. And one of those journeys, I went to Damascus. God was at work in the biggest bully of them all, the one who had the most power, seemingly, in society. The principle is, think about you in your life. To whom are you afraid to speak? Even the person you think is the least likely to become a Christian can be saved by God. Will you trust God to wield his power when you follow and obey him with your weak and fearful and inexperienced voice trying to share the gospel, maybe even for the first time. God doesn't usually act through angels or dreams. God acts through you. Therefore, you must act. Make the most of every opportunity. And so God says to Ananias, go. And the thing is, the more we understand the gospel and how much Jesus has saved us, the more we actually want to go. And if you find you 
you have no desire to speak to someone about a Christ, it's probably because you really aren't thinking clearly about what the gospel means to you in your own life. The more we love others, we are willing to put ourselves in awkward positions and situations, maybe even face persecution to love someone enough to tell them about Jesus. Uh, some of you have families, your kids really like animals. Who's an animal kid? You always want to take home animals? You know, if you see a, wa- a cat that's kind of out in the wild, um, that's like maybe the, the mom ran away and had the kittens out in the wild, they're kind of wild and they didn't, don't know how to behave, and you get close to it, what's it going to do? Scratch you, right? Or bite you. But you still go do it because you love animals, right? How much more people? They're going to scratch you and bite you too, maybe not literally, but we go talk to them because we love them. The more you know how much God has loved you, the more you're going to do that. So think about the rich, wealthy, educated people who hate Christians They're not just in the big cities in the East and West Coast. They're here. Some of them have millions and billions of dollars. Presidents and prime ministers might consult them and try to get their favor. Universities give them honorary degrees. And who are you and me, some little, uh, you know, laborer, to go talk to someone like that? How can such a man listen to you? Well, of course, if... This world is all there is, and it's just up to you. That man's not going to listen to you. But don't forget God's power. And he chooses to wield it through you. If I came to you and said, I mean, it seems even less likely when you you look at the message uh, Paul was getting, uh, Saul was getting, If I came to you and said, repent and believe, I will show you the secrets of success in life, would you say, yes, I want what you're offering? But what if I came to you and said, repent and believe in Jesus, and I will show you how much you will suffer for Jesus? Do you think anyone would say, sign me up for this life? No way! Then why are you here in this pew? Isn't this the gospel message? You're a sinner, You're not, you do not have it all together. You have not done enough to be accepted by God. You are a wretched enemy against God, yet Christ, God loved you and Christ died for you. Isn't this the gospel message? No one's going to accept that unless the Holy Spirit is at work in their hearts. But like Saul, the Holy Spirit was at work. And we are called to act by faith and not by sight. You can't, you don't know what's in someone's heart. Even when your first time you talk to that person and they are really awkward and they like, oh, who are you, yuck. You don't know if God's not next day, that very thing you said is just like they can't get it out of their head, and then they come back and find you later and say, please tell me more. You just don't know. We walk by faith and not by sight. 
in every part of our lives. You see, God's power that's greater than the heart of the star is at work in the hearts of men. If God changes a man's heart, he will receive that kind of suffering. He'll give up his comfort. He will consider whatever suffering that he goes through that can't be compared to the glory that will be revealed. God did not hide his plans for Saul. The church should not hide part of God's word from his people. I deal with this in Taiwan a lot. There are churches that have these big programs to get new people to come in, and they They'll even get them to the level of being baptized, and I asked, did you ever talk about sin once? And they said no. Those people are not Christian yet. They don't even know what sin is. They just think, oh, this is a great you know, country club to join or something. You don't say Jesus loves you without speaking of sin because God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You cannot speak of the gospel without it. And that gospel message is going to be hated by everybody who's a rebel against God. Whether baby or 90-year-old, it doesn't matter. But nonetheless, God uses us and the message we speak that's totally unconvincing in a hardened heart to break open those bonds and bring them to Christ. Too many churches think that if they talk about suffering, people will not want to come to their church. They also don't want to talk about sin. They're only willing to say, if you come, become a Christian, and receive baptism and join our church, you will find human flourishing, and your life will become happier and happier. It is true, you will flourish, and your life will be happier, but you will suffer. In their rush to be successful and grow in numbers, the churches forget the crucial thing that it is God who chooses whom he will save. And they're just relying on human wisdom and human methods to get numbers in the door and money in the offering plate. That doesn't transform or change. This is a big problem where I serve in Taiwan, and that's why the churches in Taiwan are so weak. A new Christian must be born by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they're completely, utterly going to reject you. It's okay to be rejected because that part of the work is God's work in, in the heart. God chooses whom he saves and whom God chooses. God's right hand and almighty power does save. And whom God saves, God changes. And the very man causing the suffering of the church turned around and gave himself to suffer for the same church he used to persecute. So when you suffer, don't think God has abandoned you. God didn't abandon the church during the time of persecution, and God never abandoned Saul through all his years of suffering for the sake of Christ after he became a Christian. Walk by faith. You go. God is with us. There will be fruit to your labors in the Lord, even if you never see them. But you will see, sometimes you will see clearly God's power at work 
and your life and the lives of those around you. And so like in verse 20, Saul immediately, it says, began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Saul's heart was totally, utterly changed. I want to ask you, do you believe that God can change the ones in your life who seem so far away from the true faith? Do you pray for them? Do you speak to them? Even if they frown at you? Or have you given up? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's new creation. The change in a man is like a resurrection. It's a resurrection power. It's not yours. It's Christ. So as we finish today, let's consider God's grace. Jesus loves very deeply those who hate him. And this is why you and I became a Christian, because yes, when we were born, we were born with a heart from Adam that's sinful and doesn't want God to tell us what to do. This is why you and I share the gospel with others, because though you can see how evident it is they hate Christians, Jesus loves those who hate him. We were haters of God before we heard about Jesus, and God changed our hearts to repent and believe. If you don't believe someone else can be changed, really you're you're saying, well, I'm kind of better than that person from the start, so that's why I changed and they won't. If you see the depth of your own sin, you will have confidence that when you speak to someone else, God can change that person too. God's grace is at work in you, and his grace is at work in your enemies. Ananias found this out. There's something wrong, I think, with a lot of supposedly theological correct people because they don't seem to, a lot of them don't seem to have a love for the lost. They love talking about um, theological books. I have this trouble with some of the seminary students in Taiwan. I, they'll come out, I'll interview them to be interns, and then I'll ask, like, how much evangelism have you done? And they'll say, well, I think my gift is more in teaching Sunday school <laughs> or doing administration. There's something wrong because if you really are theologically correct, if you really understand the gospel, it will just overflow. You will have trouble being silent because you're not afraid for your future. You know you already have eternal life in Christ. And you're not seeking your own comfort because you know how much Christ has suffered for you, and you want to give your whole life sold out fully for him. It has to overflow, not just in delight in God's word, not just in discussion and knowledge of theological works, which are very valuable, but a love for the lost. Even the big bullies 
in the neighborhood. And also consider God's grace. Jesus so identifies with his people and their suffering, and when you have an uncomfortable situation you go through, even when you you try to share the gospel and someone sneers at you or rejects you, Jesus so identified with the people and their suffering, his, their, his people and their suffering, that is just as if Jesus is suffering there along with you. Did you notice what Jesus said to Saul? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? He's with you every single instant of time in every single thing you go through. And he identifies with you. And his power is at work in your life. And he works through you and wields his power through you, not just professional missionaries or pastors or people who've gone to seminary. This church cannot exist on a pastor. God didn't call a bunch of pastors together. That would be a presbytery. He called you to be here. He wields his power through you. If Jesus loves a man like Saul, Jesus can love a man or a woman or a boy and girl just like you. And if Jesus can love a man like you, Jesus can love the ones in your life who seem farthest away from coming to the faith. So you go talk to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are so fearful, self-protective, comfortable. Lord, we pray that you would give us a love for others that we will go to them and a love for you that we want your name to be glorified among all nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.